the Phenomenal Fan Podcast, a podcast by the fan for the fan. Phenomenal Fan Podcast. Phenomenal Fan Podcast, I think, is what I just ripped off right there. I think I'm just so dialed in. I think my brain's moving faster than my mouth right now. A, because I've cooked up. It's got to be at least four cups of coffee at this point. Maybe five, maybe six, half dozen. When you roll up that much caffeine into somebody's body, combine that with the reactionary necessity of somebody who is a diehard sports fan, who has eyeballs, who witnessed potentially the NFL openly, finally exposing itself as an entertainment product and not a true outcome product. All these thoughts got to come out of my head. All these thoughts got to get down on a podcast, documented somewhere, combined with six cups of coffee. We might be in, you know, in for a little bit of trouble. Welcome to the Phenomenal Fan Podcast, guys. Again, my name is Ryan. For those of you who don't know or are tuning in for the first time, episode 54, we got an absolute doozy for you because guess what? The Super Bowl is set. The NFL did maybe the worst it's ever done in terms of officiating over the past weekend. The NBA had a bunch of drama, including more officiating issues. We'll talk about all of it uh, and break it down from the beginning. But overall, to start, overall in the NFL, I thought it went exactly how a lot of people expected it to. I knew from the onset that certain things were going to happen this weekend no matter what. I was able to predict a lot of it pretty accurately. But a lot of it also was unpredictable. Injuries and penalties and referees and let's be honest outcomes getting shifted drastically based on the officiating so nfc championship eagles take down the san francisco 49ers 31 to 7 brock purdy quarterback for the 49ers gets hurt in the first quarter goes back to throw a pass ball gets hit out of his hand by a pass rusher as he was throwing, hurt his elbow. 49ers had to had to turn to Josh Johnson. Josh Johnson. That obviously didn't turn out well for them. They couldn't move the ball. The Eagles just ran. The Eagles just like ran all over him. All over him. Um, I know Jalen Hurts had a ton of rushing yards. Let's see here. Uh, the team, Philly as a team against San Francisco, 148 rushing yards. 148 rushing yards. Um, 48 for Gainwell. 42 for Miles Sanders. 39 for Jalen Hurts. 21 for Boston Scott. That's obviously very beneficial for Philadelphia moving forward, especially going into the Super Bowl. If they could have a, multiple guys rush for over 30 or 40 yards, that's insane. Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts played well. He played well. But he played well as a runner of the football. He didn't necessarily throw the ball that well. Luckily, he's going to have two weeks to recover. But, well, again, we'll start from the beginning. Eagles beat the 49ers 31-7. to Okay? In Philly, at home... I pretty much knew this is exactly what was going to happen with this game. I I had a great idea of that. I knew that Philly at home was hard to beat to begin with. Throw in a rookie quarterback. Throw in banged up guys on offense for San Francisco. It was going to be hard 
for San Francisco to come out of this game with a win. Despite all the weapons they have on offense, despite the stellar defense that they had, just strictly operating based on momentum, the Eagles already had a huge advantage going into this game. Then Brock Purdy gets hurt. At that point, just chalk it, right? Game's over. Just chalk, just chalk it. It's over. Combine that with 148 rushing guards for Philadelphia. I mean, they didn't even have to run the ball, or I'm sorry, they didn't have to pass the ball very effectively at all. Jalen Hurts threw the ball 25 times. I mean, 121 passing yards, you know, 64 quarterback rating, 72 pass rating. Like he looked kind of eh, whatever as a passer, but they ran the ball all over everybody. Jalen Hurts had a rushing touchdown. Boston Scott had a rushing touchdown. Miles Sanders had two rushing touchdowns. It was a run the ball at will. And that's how you win football games. Uh, San Francisco had the same type of thing. They had the same type of game plan and approach, not just in this game, but that's where they found a lot of their success this year uh, was running the ball. You run the ball with McCaffrey. You run the ball with Debo. And you're effective enough. You can turn a guy like Brock Purdy into a, a really, really effective passer. But when Brock Purdy gets hurt, then it's strictly run. I mean, at that point, honestly, the 49ers probably would have been better off just running wildcat with McCaffrey, like randomly throwing a jump pass every, every series, uh, triple option type stuff. than trying to do whatever they were doing, which was just handing the ball off. Uh, it was a tough scene for San Francisco, but there was uh, a couple interesting plays in this game that we'll talk about later on, but San Francisco handing out, 148 rushing yards on the ground. They never had a chance in this entire game. They never had a shot. And for Philadelphia, if they're going to continue to run the ball at the clip that they're running it at so effectively, I mean, they average three and a half yards a carry, uh, but that's with four different guys running the ball. I mean, that's three and a half yards a carry with a starting running back is, is pretty good. That's about, you know, about average. But then you look down at the receiving area and, you know, there was nobody there was nobody in Philadelphia's receiving core that received the ball more than 36 yards. Devontae Smith, two catches for 36. A.J. Brown, four for 28. Gainwell, two for 26. Goddard, five for 23. That was it. Uh, that was it. Uh, on the meet, you know. They had. Nine different guys targeted or eight different guys targeted. And it was just their day. They were at home, like I said. And San Francisco was known for a really solid defense. But as soon as Brock Purdy was injured, the, the game was effectively over. They could have saved everybody a lot of time and just said, all right, you guys shake hands, let's wrap it up, uh, because this is just going to get ugly. San Francisco scored one touchdown, and the only reason they did is because Christian McCaffrey single-handedly just willed his way into the end zone. For Philadelphia, okay, moving forward, Taking takeaways from this game for them as a team, if they run the ball at any effective level or anywhere near the effectiveness that they have been and they run it, let's say they, they put up the exact same rushing statistics against Kansas City in the Super Bowl. 14 carries for 48 for Kenneth Gainwell, 11 for 42, Miles Sanders, 11 for 39, Jalen Hurts, 6 for 21 with Boston Scott. If they do that or anything resembling that, 44 carries for 148 yards, First of all, if they're running 44 uh, run plays and if they manage to rack up 148 rushing yards against Kansas City, my God, will they blow them out. I mean, they will blow them out because that'll mean Patrick Mahomes is staying on the sideline. That'll mean they're running a ton of offensive plays and they're running it effectively enough with two touchdowns in Sander, uh, for Sanders on the ground, a, a rushing touchdown for Jalen Hurts. Boston Scott mixes in a touchdown at the end. If they get four rushing touchdowns and run 44 rushing plays with 148 yards, they might beat Kansas City by three touchdowns. That's where they stand. Because then, like we talked about, on the receiving side of the ball, Devontae Smith only had two catches. A.J. Brown only had four catches. Goddard had five. They barely even used their offensive weapons in the receiving game. Barely even used them. And they blew out San Francisco. Yeah, you know, they had Brock Purdy, right? I know Kansas City has Mahomes and Kelsey and all these other guys. And their defense is okay. 
but they're going to lose potentially 31 to 7 too if this is what the Eagles are able to do on the ground running the football because the Eagles defense I mean yeah you know it was a it was a pretty one one-sided operation or one-dimensional I should say one-dimensional operation for San Francisco after Purdy got hurt and it was relatively run one-dimensional while he was healthy right I mean it's a run first run off the play action RPO stuff with Brock Purdy but even then Philadelphia's defense was I mean the fact that they got to Purdy they they got to him a couple different times they got to Josh Johnson a couple times and and you know, yeah, you could say whatever, it's Josh Johnson or not, but they run a pass play and it's pass protection for San Francisco. Philadelphia got home. Got home. So good for Philly. They are NFC champions and they are going to the Super Bowl. And at the moment are listed as the favorite over Kansas City by a couple points on the gambling line. I'm surprised it's not more and I'm also surprised that when the matchup was set after Kansas City won last night, that the line opened with Kansas City as a favorite. As soon as that line opened up, it got hammered so hard for Philadelphia that it moved from, I think, Kansas City minus one and a half all the way to like Philadelphia minus two over the span of a couple hours. I don't know how high it's going to get for Philadelphia. I don't know how much farther it's going to go for Philadelphia as a favorite. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if Philadelphia... Shows up on Super Bowl Sunday as a seven, six and a half point favorite. I wouldn't be shocked at all. And if that's the case, I'm taking that. I would take that all day long because Philadelphia showed in this game against San Francisco, they are so well rounded as a unit. The defense is dominant, the run game is dominant, the pass game is, I wouldn't say maybe dominant, but it's extremely effective. For San Francisco, the defense was dominant. The run game was really, really good, but the passing game is where there was a lot of questions, and I knew that the lack of experience with Purdy was going to be an issue to begin with, but on top of that, he got hurt, and it was just game over. Game over. And, like, Philadelphia, I mean, yeah, you know, it wasn't the most thrilling game to watch, uh, but that that doesn't matter for the Eagles, and Eagles fans, they don't give a shit. They, they're going to go out and blow people out running the ball if that's what it takes. Yeah, it might not be the flashiest thing ever. It might not be Mahomes rolling around, scrambling, backhand, flipping the ball, and doing all this crazy stuff. They don't care. Win's a win. And they clearly showed it against San Francisco, killing the 49ers in this game. I took the Eagles on the points, won it with ease, obviously. I think they were two-and-a-half-point or three-point favorites, uh, and they win by 24. So... Eagles NFC champs, good season for San Francisco. They have a lot of question marks coming back next year with Purdy and Trey Lance and Jimmy G and all these different things. That doesn't matter at the moment because the Eagles right now look really good, and I, I would have them as my favorite. Uh, I, I would pick them to cover the spread if they are the favorite in the Super Bowl. And if they're not the favorite, which would be absurd, I would take them on the other side in the money line because I think – if they play anything like they did in the NFC Championship, they are going to walk away as Super Bowl champs with ease. With ease. So good for the Eagles, man. Good for the Eagles. Congratulations to them. Um, yeah, really good game. Really, really good game for the Eagles. It may not be the flashiest, right? Like I said, you know, may not be the flashiest. Um, but it is what it is. Moving on to the AFC Championship. So, AFC Championship, American Football Conference. Just kidding. I'm not going to be that guy, but I will say. AFC Championship, Chiefs, Bengals. Highly anticipated. Highly anticipated game. Really excited for it. Burrow Mahomes, right? Kansas City. At home, rematch of last year's AFC Championship. All these different things, all these different storylines. What are you going to do? How is Kansas City going to attack Joe Burrow this time around? How is Cincinnati's defense going to attack Patrick Mahomes this time around? Looking back on it, we'll get into the we'll get into the uh, the referees and the sh the ref show that they put on. There's some takeaways that to take away from this game 
there's some takeaways to take away from this game. But there's a lot of plays that you could take back and go, what the hell happened there? What are these plays? What is going on? Number one, the general theme of this game is Patrick Mahomes has an ankle injury. Patrick Mahomes is hurt. He's going to be hobbling. You know, like he he looked okay, right? Coming into the game, he looked mobile enough to be really effective. And again, even with Mahomes at 80% or a, a bum ankle, he's still better than most quarterbacks in the league. It looked like he was pretty okay and pretty mobile towards the beginning of the game. There were a few plays where he had to scramble out left and right and put a lot of pressure and a lot of weight on that right ankle. And when he did that, he walked away hobbling pretty severely. That being said, he still has one of the best arm talents in the entire league and potentially ever in the history of the NFL. So some of the throws he made were absolutely ridiculous. A touchdown pass to Marquez Valdez-Scantling, uh, I think in the second quarter, crazy throw. And it's apparent that Mahomes is better than Josh or uh, than Joe Burrow, right? I think there was some discussion. There was some discussion and some debate about who's better, Mahomes or Burrow. Most people would say it was Mahomes, but some people's argument was, well, Burrow's played him three times and beat him three times. And that is partially true. But the other thing that's ha- that hasn't been tossed into the conversation and consideration that I feel like is the home field factor. The home field factor for Kansas city is so severe that it's going to single-handedly win them a lot of games of those three games where Cincinnati's beaten Kansas city, two out of the three have been in Cincinnati. And as we know, the third game was in Kansas city in the AFC championship last year. And it was a situation where, you know, Cincinnati just played exceeded their their level of play, I think, and everybody just stepped up and went crazy. I mean, you had guys like Samaji Pirine like going off. Uh, you had the the defense for Cincinnati going off. And that to me was the deciding factor in this game because we talk about who's better. We talk about is it Mahomes, is it Burrow? And the argument was going both ways. I still said Mahomes was slightly better than Burrow, and I think this game would show that. But I think the story of this game and the story of any quarterback moving forward, especially when you compare these two guys, Mahomes and Burrow, the story is always going to be determined based on how a quarterback plays under pressure. Mahomes lost a lot of his receivers early on. Uh, I think he lost Kadarius Toney early on. Mikul Hardman was a is a 50-50 kind of coming back from injury option. He ended up having to throw the ball to guys like Marcus Kemp, uh, Juju, Schmidt, Juju Smith-Schuster, who's, yeah, I mean, he's a good receiver, but he's not even like his third or fourth target most of the time. Threw the ball to Pacheco a bunch of times, McKinnon a bunch of times, um, Marquez, Valdez, Scantling a bunch of times, Kelsey, obviously, right? But when you compare the weapons that he was working with in Kansas City to the other side of the ball with T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, Tyler Boyd, Hayden Hurst, etc., I think a lot of people would argue as, as a cumulative unit, Cincinnati's offensive receiving weapons are a lot better than Kansas City's offensive receiving weapons. Kelsey carries the offensive receiving weapons for Kansas City. After that, it's running backs and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. That's pretty much it. But in Cincinnati, you got guy like T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, and Tyler Boyd, who all of which could potentially be wide receiver one on a handful of teams. And they they are, I think it's wide receiver one A and wide receiver one B with Chase and T. Higgins. Tyler Boyd's wide receiver two or three, right? But you put Tyler Boyd on a handful of other teams in the NFL, he might be wide receiver one. Plus Joe Burrow, plus Samaji Pirine, or I should I'm sorry, plus Joe Mixon and Samaji Pirine. Joe Burrow's got a lot more to work with. The issue that Cincinnati ran into that I think was the deciding factor, take the referees and the other play calls out of it. The the deciding factor between Burrow and Mahomes is how each guy played under pressure and the decision-making that they had. Mahomes under pressure on a bum ankle through some of the most ridiculous throws I've seen in the NFL this season. 
crazy accurate throws. And yeah, he missed some throws too, definitely. But 326 yards, two touchdowns is crazy. Uh, he also got sacked three times for, uh, you know, 11-yard losses. Burrow got sacked five times for 32 losses. And at the end of the day, when you look at the play of the both, of both the quarterbacks, I think Burrow was working with a pieced-together offensive line. So certainly a disadvantage for him at quarterback. But I think Mahomes and Burrow were under the same amount of pressure throughout the game. It's just how each guy went about handling it. In the sake of Mahomes, he would scramble, roll up, you know, step up in the pocket, and then throw off one foot, some ridiculous throw. Burrow took a lot of sacks. And then when Burrow was under pressure, he made some questionable kind of high-risk, high-reward decisions. One of his interceptions was thrown into double coverage that was eventually tipped up in the air and intercepted. And then another one of his throws was a one-on-one -on -one ball kind of matchup throw against a DB with T Higgins, where he kind of just, again, threw it up in the air and the DB was played excellent coverage on T Higgins and just pulled it in interception. There weren't very many throws from Mahomes in this AFC championship game where I was like, Oh, bad throw. Like there was like, I think maybe one tip, but that was it with Burrow. Every, like, I feel like every drive, he made a throw where you were like, Whoa, okay. You know, including a Jamar Chase catch uh, down on the red zone that ended up leading to a touchdown on fourth down, I believe. He threw, just threw it up to Chase in double coverage. Burrow also had a lot of good, accurate throws in this game. A couple balls, Hayden Hurst had a potential touchdown that he didn't pull in. That was a perfectly thrown ball by Joe Burrow. Uh, another ball that was a sideline ball to Jamar Chase that hit him in the helmet, perfectly thrown ball. But perfectly thrown doesn't necessarily mean it was a great decision uh, because perfectly thrown can, can end up converting and turning into a reception. But when it's super tight coverage or double coverage or like tight, tight window throws, those aren't going to be converted at an incredibly high rate. Doesn't hurt that the throws are perfect, but Burrow last year in that game against Kansas city felt like he had a lot of those plays and a lot of those throws that were, I don't want to say not like miracle throws, but like incredibly tight window throws. Combine that with a check down screen to Samaji Piran that goes 38 yards to the house. Jamar Chase, the, the touchdown last year in the AFC Championship, one-on-one -on -one kind of back shoulder, low, low fade jump ball. Not even a jump ball. It was, again, low fade back shoulder. Jamar Chase just makes a play. And that's on Joe Burrow in a good way, too. It's, it's, a, it's a positive that you can give him and say, okay, his decision-making is obviously really high level and that he knows where his matchups are going to be favorable. And that's definitely something Joe Burrow is good at. He picks out his matchups. Even, like I said, the double team, the yeah, double team sort of just throw up on fourth and six or fourth and five or whatever to Jamar Chase in that game to put him in the inside goal-to-go situation. Was it a good throw? Maybe. Was it a favorable matchup? Maybe. But at the end of the day, he knows Jamar Chase is a playmaker. You take all of that stuff into consideration. And yes, everybody with a brain and eyes can see that Kansas City got a lot of help from the referees in that game last night. Uh, that game was officiated in favor of Kansas City. I don't know if there's technically a statistic to quantify that, uh, especially since a lot of the calls that went in favor of Kansas City were judgment calls. But there were a handful of plays that could have gone either way and seemingly always went towards Kansas City. A lot of missed penalties on Cincinnati. That is neither here nor there. Just strictly watching quarterback play and how the quarterbacks executed under pressure and in varying circumstances, Mahomes played much better than Joe Burrow did last night. Much better. Just based on not only, of course, statistics, but the eye test and everything else. So Mahomes is better. Burrow is still very good. I think after that's the game last night, I think there's some argument or some debate uh, as to who maybe the number two quarterback is in the NFL. Because going into next year, you're going to have a handful of guys that are going to be in consideration for that top five, those top five spots. Brady's going to be deteriorating. Rodgers is deteriorating. 
and you're going to see guys slide into that top five with names like Josh Allen, who's been up there, Justin Herbert, who's been in the conversation, guys like Trevor Lawrence, Jalen Hurts. So the debate for number two is going to be an interesting one, but I think after last night's game, after the AFC Championship between the Chiefs and the Bengals, it's very apparent that Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL. If he comes away with the Super Bowl, if he wins in Kansas City, if Patrick Mahomes wins the Super Bowl, and now, let me, let me put it this way. If Mahomes wins the Super Bowl against the Eagles, a top defense in the NFL, and would be having, he would, he would have two Super Bowls in the early stages of his career, dealing with injuries, dealing with losing guys like Tyreek Hill, no offensive line, poor defenses. He will have three Super Bowl appearances, and he'll have two for three if he beats the Eagles. There's going to be some discussions and debates that are 100% justified about if Patrick Mahomes may be the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. Because everybody knows it's Tom Brady, but everybody knows with a brain and a set of eyes that the throws and the things that Patrick Mahomes does as a quarterback on the field are things that Tom Brady could never do in his entire career. Mahomes does things physically, mentally, that Tom Brady would have never been able to pull off. So it'd be two Super Bowls versus seven for Brady. And of course, Brady would have the edge in that circumstance. But you have to take context. You have to take. You have to take context into consideration. You have to take defensive efficiencies into consideration and the team as a whole and the sport as a whole and realize that Mahomes is doing things that no other quarterback could potentially do in the history of the sport. Now, if he loses the Philadelphia then the conversation stays pretty neutral and there's not really much debate whether Brady or Mahomes are the best quarterbacks of all time. It's still obvious and apparent that Mahomes is doing crazy things, but in the realm of debate and the realm of value as a quarterback and talking about things like greatest of all time, you have to come out of there with Super Bowl wins. Otherwise, people just won't even entertain the argument. If Mahomes ends up with three or even maybe four in his career, I don't think there'd be any doubt at that point that he's the greatest quarterback of all time. Two is a little bit of that gray area where you probably still give the edge to Tom Brady. Now you give him three or two against the Eagles and a really, really good defense. If he blows him out and puts up 50, there's going to be debates about him being the greatest quarterback of all time. And I think those are entirely justified, entirely justified. Then you take Mahomes and you put him up against Joe Burrow. I don't think there's even a little bit of a speck of discussion about which guy's better. Uh, Mahomes is better. Burrow's still very good. Didn't have a great game. Did have to go on the road. You know, he beat he beat the Ravens earlier in the playoffs. He beat Buffalo on the road. If he'd have beat Kansas City again, that would have been bananas. And that's the other thing going into this conversation is that he he had an opportunity. He had two fourth quarter possessions uh, and just, you know, yeah, there was some poor blocking on the offensive line. Um, some stuff where, yeah, you know, it could have gone either way and it's not entirely Joe Burrow's fault. Play calling probably could have been a little bit better. Uh, could have developed a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, you know, they didn't get it done. And yeah, the refs helped out a little bit. But Mahomes is better than Burrow. Def definitely not really an argument. Mahomes over Burrow. And anybody who says differently is definitely wrong in that situation. Now, what we do have to discuss, what needs to be talked about, people will sit back and say, people will sit back and say, you can't blame refs. But what needs to be addressed, and maybe it's not something that needs to be addressed because a lot of people want to talk about it or it's speculation or it's conspiracy theory, 
anybody, anybody with a brain, anybody with eyes and a brain watching the AFC championship could tell you apparently and obviously unequivocally without a question that the referees were making calls that seemingly only favored Kansas city. And we're also not making any calls that favored the Cincinnati Bengals. There were a half dozen examples of plays where penalties should have been called on the chiefs to favor the Bengals, And they weren't. And on the flip side, another half dozen calls that went against Cincinnati and favored Kansas city that probably shouldn't have been penalties on top of it. You have a situation where Kansas city has the ball in the fourth quarter, third and nine, the referees run in, stop the play, reset the ball, which gives Kansas city an opportunity to sit back, look at the defensive scheme that Cincinnati's running and audible out or check out of the play that they had designed. Give them the chance to see the defense, read it, take a step back. Oh, let's move the ball back six inches. And then before the play starts again, basically as the snap's being taken, a back judge on the far sideline that's so far away from the play comes halfway sort of jogging in on the play, stops it as the play's running. Chiefs throw a ball short of the sticks. Kelsey gets tackled and it's fourth down. Behold everything. Hold everything. Referees reset the game, get together. The referees get together, reset the game clock, and determine that the play had been stopped before it actually started because of the back judge who's 30 yards from the ball came running in for whatever reason. No, I don't think we've even gotten... I don't think we've gotten a definitive explanation as to why the guy was even stopping the game to begin with, right? Before that, before the play was actually snapped, they said the ball moved. And you know what? That's a stupid excuse, but that's fine, right? That's stupid. Who cares? The ball's moving up six inches or not. That's not going to change where the first down marker is. And then six inches. Yeah. You know, I guess, I guess that could be the determining factor. That could be the margin that a guy gets the first down by. But for the most part, I don't care. You don't need to stop play. The ball's kicked a yard and a half forward. That's fine. Go get the ball, move it back. But you stop the play when the Chiefs get stopped short. And then, and then they get another opportunity, run, uh, you know, a couple deep routes. Eli Apple fucking burnt toast. Terrible DB. Big mouth. Hold on. Let's, and let's, we'll get into Eli Apple in a second. But Eli Apple gets burnt, holding call or pass interference, automatic first down for Kansas City. And it was the right call. He was holding Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I mean, whatever. He, you know, he interfield, interfered. Uh, then they get, they get a first down, and they actually end up punting. So it's not, it, you know, it wasn't the, the determining call or the determining play. It's, it's not like... Uh, you know, they went down and scored and won by that margin of points. It's because Cincinnati did get the ball back. But somebody's got to give me a legitimate explanation as to why the play was stopped in the first place. Uh, it, it, it almost looked like to me, it almost looked like to me, the back judge referee tried to stop the play, but like came in and stopped running and almost like let the play develop. And then when the Chiefs didn't get the first down, he came together with the other referees and said, oh, no, I was trying to stop the play. But I feel like based on the way he treated that situation, it almost looked like if Kansas City would have executed the first down, he'd have just gone back to his position and not said anything. That's what it felt like to a lot of people. And it also just took forever for the TV coverage to show what was going on when the stoppage came into play. And everybody's like, what's happening? What's going on? That explanation makes no sense. Who stopped the play? Why did they respot the ball? All these different questions. And it's like nobody even had time to explain it. And then boom, boom, boom. Two plays go. First down. Chiefs have the ball. It is what it is. And yeah, they ended up punting inconsequentially. But the explanation was never there. And so all that's going to do is put the integrity of the game in question based on the NFL. And Anybody who sits back and says, well, the referees were doing that to benefit Kansas City, they have a basis for that argument. 
because any other explanations or argument don't have any logical backing behind it. So Cincinnati had to fight through that. And the referees, there was a pass interference call on Mike Hilton uh, on Marquez Valdez-Scantling. It was very 50-50. I could see with the arm wrapped around the waist. Yeah, you know, maybe I guess that's a penalty. Then Cincinnati gets the ball back. After they already get bent over the sink by the referees to benefit Kansas City, Cincinnati, to Kansas City's credit, aren't able to get enough yardage, and they have to punt the ball back to Kansas City with under a minute to play. Sky Moore receives the punt and comes streaking down the sideline, and there is a blatant and obvious block in the back. It's as apparent as it comes, right in front of the Cincinnati bench and a referee, and there's just no call. And Sky Moore just streaks down the sideline, gets up to the 50-yard line, just sets up Kansas City beautifully for an opportunity to get some yards and kick a field goal to win the game. Where's the flag? This is another one of the many examples and pieces of evidence that people seem to have some credibility on about the NFL referees rigging the game and benefiting the Kansas City Chiefs to send them to the Super Bowl. Because most of the time, people sit back, including myself, and go, oh, no, NFL's rigged, NFL's rigged. And I go, you know, as much as, yeah, there was a lot of referees or calls by the refs that benefited maybe one side or another, or one call here and there, at the end of the day, it, you know, the one call on the one play is it shouldn't be the determining factor, right? Like, but that one play or that one call, that was the factor. That was the way, that was the reason the team lost the game. And it's like, no, how about the second and three play in the second quarter? Bengals had the ball on the 38-yard line. Why didn't they just throw a 75-yard touchdown? You know, or whatever. Why didn't they just go to eat? Like, so yeah, like, why didn't they get a touchdown on every single play? Like, obviously it's not realistic, but you get the argument that I'm making, which is it's not always, it, you cannot determine the outcome of a game based on basically one play. You just can't. There's 120 plays in a game. You can't just say this, this one play determined the game. That being said, it wasn't just one play for Kansas City that they were getting the benefit on. There were multiple calls, multiple plays where people sat back and were like, what? What is going on? What happened here? Why do they get extra plays? Why is there always a defensive penalty on Cincinnati when Kansas City isn't able to convert on third down? Always. That's what it seemed like. And maybe that was just Cincinnati not being disciplined enough. But when you look at team stats and you look at penalties for yardage, nine penalties for ball, uh, for Cincinnati for 71 yards, four penalties for 51 yards for Kansas City. So more penalties on Cincinnati. Maybe they are more, dis uh, you know, undisciplined, I guess you could say. But there was a lot of defensive penalties that just simply didn't add up. Didn't add up. So I'm not going to say the NFL's rigged. I'm not going to sit here and be like, this is bullshit. It is what it is. But it's hard to argue against the people that are sitting back saying that game was never going to go in favor of Cincinnati. It's hard to argue against that because every time there seemed to be a 50-50 call or there should have been a call or there shouldn't have been a call, but there was one, it seemed to always go against Cincinnati. Now, of course, yes, there were four penalties on Kansas City, but they seemed to be relatively inconsequential. The, the last scramble play for Mahomes at the end of the game. When he gets hit out of bounds, yes, 15 more yards, and they, they put him in field goal range. On that scramble play itself, Trey Hendrickson was rushing Mahomes as a passer, or as a, as a pass rusher, I should say, and Hendrickson was getting 
you know, held inside his pads, which for the most part, and in, and in most cases, as a lot of people talk about, there can always be a holding call. There's always room for a holding call in almost any play uh, in the NFL. But once a quarterback scrambles outside the pocket, that's when you start to see, that's when you start to see holding calls become a lot more apparent. You start to see them because, well, now the guy's trying to scramble to go get the quarterback and he can't get away. He's being held. Hendrickson on that last play was getting blatantly held, like blatantly held. And there was just no call. Just no call. Lock in the back. No call. Two two attempts at a third down conversion. Only for Kansas City. When Cincinnati had the ball, there was no spotting issues. There was no clock issues. There was no stoppage issues. Why? I, I, I don't know. I don't entirely know. But it was very fishy and suspect. And I'm not going to tell you the NFL's rigged. But what I am going to tell you is they need to do a better job of hiding it if it is. <laughs> because it was pretty obvious. It sucks for a team like Cincinnati because it does it does look like they kind of got shafted a little bit. The last thing I'll say, and the, the part of it that is important, is that I still don't think they played well enough to win that game. And they should have brought a lot more pressure on Mahomes. But nevertheless, there was a lot of calls that went against them that were very iffy, very 50-50. And Mahomes got helped out by the referees. Plain and simple, he got helped out by the refs. So, sucks for uh, sucks for Cincinnati. Kansas City got helped. Yeah, Cincinnati played better, but if the NFL is rigged, they need to do a better job of hiding it. That is for sure, because otherwise people are going to sit back and say it's rigged, just like I'm talking about right now. At least the speculation about it. And that's not what the league wants, unless they just don't care. In which case, they're going to make it more blatant and more obvious, or at least not hide it as well, because they didn't hide it very well in the AFC Championship. And it did cost Cincinnati a few points, a few plays, field position, and, and things like that. So, for Cincinnati, they're in good shape. They'll be okay. It's not the end of the world for them as a team. Um, but the officiating, it's a hard pill to swallow when you're Cincinnati and you have to sit back and go, man, if that one call would have been made or that one call wouldn't have been made, maybe things would have been different. And that, that is potentially true. Nevertheless, Kansas City wins. They go on to the Super Bowl. Chiefs, Eagles. I, I like this matchup. I like Chiefs-Eagles. I think it'll be entertaining. I wish it would have been Bengals-Eagles. But because it's Chiefs-Eagles at a neutral site, Kansas City hasn't had a ton of success at neutral sites, whether that's the two Super Bowls they've been in or, you know, not at home, basically. Right? Chiefs were 7-1 and one at home this year. Now they got to go to a neutral site in Arizona against a fan base and a team that is well-equipped to handle a situation like this. Eagles at this point, I think they sit at, uh, let me see. Eagles are sitting at two-point favorites. I would, I would put, if I had access to hundreds of thousands of dollars, I would put it on the Eagles to cover the two-point spread. The Eagles are much more well-rounded on all sides of the ball. They run the ball way more effectively than Kansas City. They're not just a one-dimensional team that relies on the production of one player. And on defense, they'll stop you at any point on any play. They turn the ball over. They get home to the quarterback. And the Chiefs just have a really, really good quarterback and a big tight end who's a good receiver of the football. On defense, they got Chris Jones and a couple other guys. But it's nowhere near the talent that the Eagles have on all parts of the ball. So that being said, the Eagles playing the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, as it stands right now, my prediction, my prediction is the Eagles take down the Chiefs 
and it's a 30, 30 to 20 game. Actually, let me say this. My prediction for Eagles Chiefs, with all things considered, I think the Eagles offense moves the ball at will against Kansas City, and I think the Chiefs struggle on offense because the Eagles defensive lines are going to get home. They're going to force Mahomes into some really tight window, tough throws, or have him roll out of the pocket on a bum ankle. And because of that, I think the Eagles take the early lead, hold it pretty steadily at halftime, and then open things up in the second half. So I'm looking at a final score somewhere of a 35 to 21 Eagles when it's all said and done. At halftime, it'll be like a 21 17 Eagles lead. But the stat sheet at the end of the game is really going to expose who played better, and the Eagles are going to have racked up a ton of rushing yards, and they're going to have got home on Mahomes and forced him into a couple picks, and they're going to walk away Super Bowl champions. So considering all things, I got 35-21 Eagles at the end of regulation. Eagles run the ball at will against Kansas City. Mahomes gets forced into some bad throws on a bum ankle, and the Eagles walk out as Super Bowl champs. They're a much more well-rounded team, and I think they win the Super Bowl. I hope they win the Super Bowl. I don't necessarily think the Chiefs... I don't want to say... I don't want to say the Chiefs don't deserve it, but the Eagles deserve it more than the Chiefs. The Eagles deserve to be in the Super Bowl way more than the Chiefs do. That's just my opinion. On the topic of poor officiating, and the last thing we'll talk about here, is a, is a controversial play that unfolded in the Lakers-Celtics game, right? Lakers-Celtics, Saturday night, LeBron, tie game, end of regulation, drives to the hoop, gets hacked by Jason Tatum in the wrist. It's a clear and obvious foul. Anybody watching it in, in replay, anybody watching it back in slow motion could see it from a mile and a half away. And this is the biggest problem with the, with the NBA. This right here is the biggest problem with the NBA. The arbitrary nature in which fouls seem to be called when it's like, that's an obvious foul and it's not called. And on the flip side, there's barely any contact. Referee blows the whistle for a foul. That in itself can be the deciding factor between who wins and loses games. It's giving or taking away two points on a possession to a certain team. And when it's as obvious as the foul was on LeBron James, that's when, again, the integrity of the game comes into question because people want to know how does a professional NBA referee who's standing two feet away miss an obvious call like that? How does that happen? Because there's no way they just miss it that bad. There must be some sort of backstage motivation. There, there must be some motivation behind the scenes because otherwise these referees... If there isn't any back, if there isn't, if there isn't any behind the scenes motivation, then these referees need to be replaced. Otherwise, they knew it was a foul. They saw the foul, but there was some behind the scenes motivation that willed them to swallow the whistle. Because it was, I mean, I mean, it was as obvious as a foul comes. And if it is a foul, LeBron gets free throws. All he's got to do is basically make one with whatever, 1.3 on the clock, and the Lakers will win the game. Instead, it goes to overtime. Celtics end up winning. But the other part of the no-call foul on LeBron is the reaction from LeBron James himself. And to me, the main reason why, no matter statistics, no matter head-to-head -head comparisons, LeBron James will never be the greatest basketball player of all time. LeBron, LeBron will never be the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. And that's just based on how he's chosen to go about his life and business. And it's based on how he's chosen to carry himself on and off the court. Because when you talk about greatest of all time, most of that is debated on. And most of that, most of that is based on statistical performance on the court. But a lot of guys will sit back and not even argue LeBron or Michael Jordan. It's MJ all the way. 
Well, how could that be? LeBron's stats are way better, especially his cumulative stats. He played longer. His numbers are probably better. His averages rival against Michael Jordan's. You know, you'll hear the same thing from anybody. You know, I hear that. I get it. But Michael just, just was different. Just carried himself different. He was just unstoppable when he needed to be. And you hear the same thing about guys like Kobe, right? Guys like Shaq. When you talk about LeBron, nobody argues the talent. Nobody argues the ability. But would you ever see Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant like throwing a tantrum at the end of a game when he doesn't get a foul that goes his way? Granted, yes, it was a foul. LeBron has every right to argue the call. But the way that he goes about it, the way that he carries himself, to me, doesn't indicate a person that's earned the right to be called greatest of all time. Because Michael Jordan in that situation doesn't get the foul call. And instead of throwing a tantrum, losing his mind, falling and collapsing to his knees, it would just piss him off and motivate him more. All right, you know what? Overtime. Give me the ball. And he'd put up 15 points in overtime, and they'd win the game comfortably. Same with Kobe. With LeBron, it's complain, it's flop, it's fall on the ground, make this humongous scene when, yes, it was a foul, and, yeah, it should have been a foul, and the referees blew the call, no doubt about it. But your reaction can indicate how things go for you moving forward. Anybody knows that that's played professional sports. As soon as LeBron reacted like that and they went to overtime, game's over. Boston's going to win that game no matter what. It's, it's, a, it's a wrap. So for LeBron to flop, well, it's not a flop. For LeBron to react that way, to me, is just yet another example of how he's never going to be considered the greatest of all time. He's just not. He's just not going to be. It's not the worst thing ever to be pissed about a non-foul call, right? But I'd, <laughs> I'd almost prefer a guy to react the way like Patrick Beverly did, which was <laughs> grabbing. It's By the way, well, let's say this. The the Patrick Beverly move, right? You say what you want about Patrick Beverly, right? Big mouth guy who maybe doesn't put up the statistics to back it up. Talks a lot of crap, especially to guys that are definitely better than him. Definitely. The move from Beverly to grab the photographer's camera and bring it over, <laughs> bring it over to the referee and show him the foul as it was going down. Gets him ejected from the game. Technical, he's 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 done. That's an all-time move. That's an all-time move from Beverly to take the camera with the photo, or yeah, with the photograph of the obvious foul on LeBron and show it to the referee. That is an all-time move. And in all honesty, I don't know what the reper- the repercussions were. I don't know what the... I don't know if the, the referees got reprimanded for missing that call so blatantly. I don't know what the repercussions were. I don't know if there are any repercussions. But that in itself, to me, was enough for the referee to be embarrassed forever. I think when it comes to officiating, this is the last thing I'll say. When it comes to officiating in professional sports. There's been an effort to assist these referees, these umpires, these officials with things like technology, instant replay, all these different metrics and lasers and automatic strike zone and tennis with the line judge, you know, the laser overview and all that stuff. There's been, there's been, there's been a humongous effort as technology has gotten better to help out these referees and make sure the calls are more consistently correct. What hasn't happened is the accountability level for these referees and officials has not changed in any way. These guys continue to repeatedly get the calls wrong over and over and over again, or make egregious mistakes, right? Referees in the AFC championship, just giving Kansas city a second opportunity to play. Referee uh, referee in the NBA missing an obvious and blatant foul call on LeBron James. Umpires in baseball missing strike calls, balls that are four or five inches off the plate, and it's strike three. 
These referees aren't doing their job, and I understand they're hard. I understand. I understand the job of referees, umpires, and officials is a difficult one. I understand it. But then let's get technology more involved and make sure there's rules in place that allow for that call on LeBron James to be reviewed so that he's able to go to the free throw line and get assessed a foul properly. Or Devontae Smith goes up for a catch in the NFC Championship game and nobody challenges it and the Eagles run up to the line of scrimmage and run a play and, oh, well, the fifth official in the booth wasn't able to get the replay off quick enough and we weren't able to see that it was actually an incompletion on fourth down. Not an excuse. Not an excuse. Not how it works. Even if the Eagles run out the line and run a play and get a playoff, actually hold on. Halfway through that play while it was running, the referee up in the booth was able to recognize and realize this was not a completed pass. Run it back. Reset the clock. It's that simple. And now in baseball, they're implementing the challenge of the strike calls, which I think is great. But the main problem is that these referees and umpires and officials aren't held accountable for poor performance. As an athlete, when you play poorly and you don't produce, you get held accountable by being benched, by being sent down, by being released, by not playing anymore. These referees, umpires, and officials make bad calls and don't do their job well, and nothing happens. They don't get held accountable. It doesn't do anything. Half of these referees in the NBA, we don't even know their faces. We don't know what their names are. We don't know what they look like. So we can't hold them accountable. We just There's like a, a couple guys that we know because they've been referees for a long time in the NBA. But otherwise, we don't hear about these guys getting punished or fined or reprimanded or any repercussions being handed out for doing a really bad job. There's nothing that happens to these guys. They keep their job, they come back the next year, and they continue to mess it up big time. And that is the situation that needs to change moving forward because I do think the human element of it is important. And there are a lot of penalties, a lot of calls, a lot of situations where it could go 50-50, and that's where the referee steps in to make the call or not make the call. But when it's obvious and blatant, it, there needs to be a way to get it fixed because it's just like, it's just like a, a poor, it's just like a poorly behaving child, right? If a kid comes up and what's a good example? If, if you have a kid and every time he sits down to eat dinner at the table, with his glass of milk, he just knocks it over on purpose. First time, he knocks it over. Ah, mistake. He's a little kid. He don't know any better. Hey, Jimmy, don't do it again. Second time he comes up, just knocks it over. Hey, we don't do that around here. That's not going to be how it works. And if you do it again, you're not going to be allowed to sit here and you're in timeout or whatever the rep repercussions are. Third time he knocks it over, all right, you're done. Get out. Go sit in your room. You're locked in there. Stare at the wall for the next five hours. No phone, no self, no TV, no video games. Those are repercussions. He is getting reprimanded for doing poorly. In the NFL, it's like, well, eh, they missed that one. What are you going to do? What? What? In the NBA, oh, yeah, that looks like it. Looks like that one should have been a foul. What are you going to do? You know, not much there. Uh, no, how about you find the official or you suspend him if he misses five obvious foul calls in one game or in baseball, if the first base umpire has five plays overturned on replay, actually, how about you're done? You're sent down to the minor leagues and we're going to get a guy up here. who will get the call, right? It's that simple. But instead, we got to sit here as a fan base. We got to sit here as sports fans, sit back and question the integrity of the game because the officials are doing such a poor job. That's not fair to us. That's not fair to the players. And all it does is make the product worse in the long run. So that's all I got to say about that. LeBron, chill the hell out a little bit. Step up, be a man, be a little bit tougher. But also, the officiating this past weekend in uh, in all sports across all leagues was about as bad as it gets. So either way, guys, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. We were able to go off a little bit, rant a little bit. 
Hopefully you guys stuck around to the end. We greatly appreciate it. Episode 54, I believe, of the Phenomenal Fan Podcast. Again, my name is Ryan. Be sure to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, we greatly appreciate it. Go over to our YouTube, subscribe to the channel, as all these clips and segments and things will be available readily on YouTube. And otherwise, I hope you guys enjoyed episode 54, and we will catch you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening to the Phenomenal Fan Podcast. Want more? Follow us on social media and subscribe to Patreon for exclusive content.